back to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Doraita. Every other month, Rav David Silverstein will host a guest in conversation about a text of their choosing. We're calling it Talking and Learning. The Talking and Learning podcast is a unique opportunity for two people to come together to unpack, study, share, and reflect on a classical Jewish text. The purpose of the learning is not only to understand the larger values and implications that emerge from the text, but to also think about the way in which the text personally impacts our lives and can serve as a springboard for broader spiritual reflection and introspection. We hope you enjoy our latest installment. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Talking and Learning podcast. This is David Silverstein, and I am joined today by my friend, colleague, and the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva Doraita, Rabbi Yitzhak Blau. Rabbi Blau, great to have you as a first-time guest on the Oraita podcast. It is exciting to be here. I will note, just uh, for the listeners, an interesting fun fact about uh, the Blau legacy that uh, I'm not sure if everybody knows this, but Rabbi Blau's grandfather was a very prominent rabbi named Rabbi Tights from Elizabeth, New Jersey, a European-trained, European-trained rabbi who actually was one of the earliest proponents of using the microphone, specifically the radio, as a medium to transmit Torah. So I feel like sitting here with his grandson is a kiyum of lahachzir atarali yoshna, of restoring the glory back to the old days. So Rablau, maybe you can just tell us quickly, is that really accurate? Was your grandfather an, an early proponent of using medium as a way to spread Torah? It is actually totally true. I think he might have been the first to give a Gemara shir over the radio. It was in Yiddish, so maybe in that aspect we will not be machzir atarali yoshna. But uh, many people listened. Interesting enough, most loved the Gemara. Some people just loved his Yiddish. They would listen to hear beautifully spoken Yiddish. And uh, there were actually chuvot written because the questions about teaching Gemara to non-Jews in the broader world. And the Sridi Eish has a chuva that's a response to my grandfather's question. So it actually led to some very interesting halakha conversations why this was a legitimate enterprise. Just out of curiosity, were there, was there any opposition within sort of the world of his rabbinic colleagues to sort of that medium? Uh, it is interesting because my grandfather was a bit of a trailblazer and willing to go his own way. And there were certain things that he had opposition to. I'm not aware per se of someone who took that on, but maybe I'm just not aware. Okay, very fascinating. So uh, moving on away from the uh, Blau family history and uh, the issue of uh, using uh, social media or, or radio or different uh, mechanisms to spread Torah, so today's topic is a topic which I think is something that uh, most modern Jews uh, in some way or another think about or struggle with, and that is the topic of uh, doubt in Judaism. So when we were thinking about coming up with the topic, we A, wanted to come up with a topic which was relevant and engaging, but also link it at least to Inyani Dioma to the holiday of Hanukkah, which is coming up uh, next week. Now obviously Hanukkah celebrates two different miracles. But more broadly, it is sort of symbolic of different views of the world between what's known in contemporary parlance as Jerusalem and Athens. So the idea basically is that Jerusalem obviously validates a reason and sees a reason as a critical variable in accessing truth. But Jerusalem, or more broadly, the Torah is anchored in a revelatory truth, a truth which you can't you know, prove conclusively. And it's rooted in a belief system that even if you can make arguments, it's certainly not an algorithmic proof. And the contrast, obviously, is Athens. And this is obviously an oversimplification, but for the purpose of the argument, the idea of Athens is that you know anything, Revelation included, is really only valuable if it can be 
proven conclusively. And therefore, if you don't have, let's say, in this case, a mathematical or analytical proof to demonstrate that revelation took place, so it doesn't really make that much sense to uh, believe in Judaism's uh, ultimate claims about how we accessed, how we accessed the Torah. And therefore, I thought it would be an interesting exercise to reflect upon sort of these two schools of thought, Jerusalem and Athens, and maybe talk for a few minutes about the role of doubt in Jewish life. If you allow me two more minutes just to provide a little bit of context here, obviously in the Middle Ages, when Judaism starts to engage with uh, the world of Greek philosophy, so this question becomes that much more pronounced. And I'll just point out that the Rav Sadigon and the Rambam and other medieval thinkers uh, did believe that certain sort of um, assumptions that we make in normative rabbinic Judaism were actually provable, right? So in other words, when you think about sort of where we are as 21st century moderns, in many ways, we have moved away from the medieval, medieval belief that sort of all these things are provable. And in a certain sense, that leaves us in a more difficult predicament. On the one hand, we do believe in certain things to be true because of revelation. On the other hand, we do accept reason as an important barometer. So if you don't believe that these things can be proven rationally, so you may actually have more doubts today than you did in the time of the Rambam. So just sort of to begin the conversation, maybe you could just reflect on quickly, uh, when you think about the question of doubt and Judaism, so obviously you decided to commit your life to Jewish education, and obviously you're somebody who's been involved in learning for many, many, many years. So just I'm curious experientially, personally, right? Number one, do you think that doubt has played a role in your religious life? And can you point to any specific... Uh, moments in terms of your own biography where you really felt that, you know, doubt was something which you were really uh, struggling with? Okay, so I, I have definitely struggled with doubt in my life. Um, I think there are a lot of components of the questions. I'm kind of debating which to go with first. But maybe I'll say, uh, I'll start with the following two categories. One would be, I think it's important to realize that um, this shouldn't be like a binary conversation, that either I'm a believer or I'm a skeptic, or even I'm a doubter. I think this is the kind of thing that there are ups and downs natural in the course of one's life. So sometimes one is, has a week where one is struggling with doubt, and the next week one feels pretty confident. So the A, I think we should be open to the up and down. B, I would say also there might be like a certain, for the sake of argument, I'll be mathematical, percentage where I'm comfortable. Like let's say I feel like I'm 88% confident in Orthodox Judaism. That might be enough at some point to just function. I don't have to live with thinking about maybe I'm wrong all the time. Just to use an analogy, a rough analogy, um, most spouses, I think, are pretty confident that their spouse is loyal to them. Can they say with 100% certainty every day that that's obviously true? Probably not, but they're, they're confident enough that they could function accordingly. So I would like to say that anyone who has questions or has doubts, A, realize there's an up and down quality to it, and B, realize that the goal might not be having, oh, I'm achieving 100% certainty. That's the only way that I could function. I think in other areas of life, we realize that's not true. Now, maybe just before I continue, I'll see if David wants to respond to that. No, no, go ahead. Keep going. Okay, great. Uh, in terms of what role doubt plays in my life, so obviously there are negative aspects to doubting, uh, both emotional and religious. Uh, maybe I'll move the conversation in where it might actually be positive. And here I will say three things. One, I think it's important for religious people to understand where other people are coming from and why the other people might not be evil for doubting their postulates. So uh, I think you see this very much with, uh, let's say we're very, someone, an Orthodox Jew is very negative about a Reformed Jew. 
And some of the negativity is because the Reformed Jew doesn't accept their religious, the fundamental beliefs. Uh, but I think if one actually realized that some of the questions this other Jew has are reasonable, right? Not that they, he has a knockout argument against Orthodox Judaism, but they're reasonable questions. I think that changes your attitude to some degree. It's hard to view the other as like, you know, coming from some place of sinister wickedness. But that someone could have authentic questions or have authentic disagreement with you, I think that's an important realization. Again, it doesn't mean you have to be plagued by doubt, but to understand how someone might think about it differently. That would be the first thing I would say. Secondly, there's a model Rav Cook was very into. Now, a bit, admittedly a bit radical, but Rav Cook said this many times. Rav Cook thought the purpose of kfira, of atheism, was to you know, clear away problematic religious beliefs, that there are beliefs that are perhaps simplistic or problematic, and there's a higher plane of belief that we should get to through these questions. Like, let's say someone has, I don't know, a very uh, simplistic approach to Scarva Onish. And he's convinced any time someone loses a basketball game, it's because they just spoke Lashon Hara, and the guy who won the game is because they stayed another 10 minutes at night Seder, right? But at some point, this could become really problematic. Like, you, then you tell, you know, people who suffered in the Inquisition that they must have been sinners. So Rav Cook might say, if I ask skeptical questions, I'm, I'm not going to lead to denying Judaism, but I'll get to a more sophisticated understanding. And it's sometimes those questions are quite helpful. If Rav Dov does mind, I'll do a third category. Go for it. Okay, so we've got, again, category one was understanding the other. Category two was getting to more sophisticated Judaism. Uh, sometimes it's not just a question of sophistication. It's just that we should be thinking people. And thinking people will get to a deeper shot. I mean, let me clarify what I mean. It's not just about simplicity. It's about understanding the Torah. Like, let's say someone says to me, uh, this is a good example because I think no one's aware of it. According to the Bible critics, the model in Sefer Shmot means we enter the land without any war. We don't have to fight battle. And all of a sudden, in Sefer Dvarim, there's all these things about war. All of a sudden, you have to go to battle. So there must be two authors. So I'm not a Bible critic. I don't believe there are two authors. So then I noticed that the Sforna thinks that we were supposed to merit entering Israel without any conflict. But because of our sins, because of Chet HaEgel and Chet HaMeraglim, that's why we have to go to war. Now, the Sferna doesn't say that he's answering the Bible critic's question. But when you read that Sferna, you might realize, whoa, that's interesting, right? Maybe the Bible critic's question could have led me to the Sferna's pshat. So I would say again, in my mind, where is doubt perhaps positive? I understand it could be very negative. A, again, understanding other people. B, getting to more sophisticated Judaism. And C, just being a thinking human being. It is good to think deeply about Torah. Well, I mean, those are, I think, all important categories and obviously important caveats for thinking about a more sophisticated approach to belief in general, more specifically the question of doubt. Just to push back for a second, not on the content of what you're saying, but more sort of shifted slightly to um, your personal encounter with the world of doubt. So you mentioned before that, let's say, for example, if Cook has his vision that the goal of heresy is to sort of pave the way for more pristine faith, right? So you can imagine, for example, that if you're somebody who's studying the world of ideas, so like someone like Rav Cook, so you can imagine that if you're deeply confident in the ultimate truth of the Torah, well, then every time you encounter sort of a problematic idea, you can say to yourself, well, you know what, this is a short-term hit, but I recognize that ultimately, given the firmness of my belief, I'll be able to use this in service of some type of greater commitment to God. But let's say, for example, you don't have the intellectual rigor or the piety of Rav Cook. So let's say, for example, you're somebody who does encounter questions about Judaism. So it could be that you 
and hopefully deep down believe that maybe Rav Cook is right, that this is part of a larger sort of divine plan. But in the moment, right? In other words, have you ever had moments in your own religious life where, you know, you're reading something or thinking about something or experiencing something where you may know in the back of your head, maybe this is all part of a larger vision of humanity or of religion. But right now, I'm just trying to make sense of how can this possibly work in the context of my day-to-day uh, religious life? That is an excellent question, Rav David. And I agree with what Rav David saying. Rav Cook was a person who had an incredibly intense sense of divine encounter. So I think for him, like it was a given that we encounter God. Now, the only question is, how do we go about thinking and conceptualizing our Judaism? And I agree for many of us that that's not the way we experience the world. And that, of course, means the risk is greater. So I can't deny that. I can't deny that uh, the risk is greater. Uh, I guess I'll say two things in response. One, I think, as, as Rev. David mentioned before, we live less in a world where we, everything is, can be rationally proven. And therefore, I think in our decision-making, I think we have to be more open to other elements uh, beyond sheer reason. Again, as he said, we're not punting reason. We're not giving it up. It's still shaping our worldview. But we're allowing... Uh, make two categories now, experiential elements and even pragmatic elements to play a role in our decision-making, and I think that's legitimate. Again, experiential elements would be more, again, experiencing uh, the beauty of religion, uh, religious experience, the beauty of morality, and pragmatic would be what lifestyle do we think leads to a better life, to a more meaningful existence? And someone might say, I don't know 100% the truth, but I do know that Shabbat engenders good family. And I do know that shul engenders good community, right? So at that point, there'd be pragmatic elements as well. Now, again, this is still no guarantee, uh, but I I do think that some of the response is that what draws us to Judaism is more than just, you know, the cosmological argument, the theological argument, the argument from mass revelation. There are other things playing a role. The other thing I'll say, and maybe this is a little bit radical, but I'm kind of willing to take the chance, even though I do know it means that, There'll be some doubters who can't find their place in Judaism. I just feel like there's no real alternative, I think, because there are real questions, and I think there'll be a real danger to totally non-sophisticated Judaism. I think there are real problems there. So I admit someone could say that I'm making a mistake in the cost-balance ratio, and better if we not open these questions and just uh, have a more simple Amunapshuta approach. But in my mind, uh, that's also a risk. It's a risk to have a, a very simplistic Judaism. It's interesting. I'll just sort of pick up on two uh, elements of what you mentioned. So this issue of utilizing pragmatic arguments in uh, service of religious faith, it's actually something that speaks to me a lot. And what I've noticed recently is that there are a lot of, I don't know if a lot, but there certainly are contemporary philosophers. For example, Sam Liebens, he has a new book coming out uh, through Magid about um, rational approaches to Jewish faith, although obviously the book has a very unique angle, and I think I haven't read the book extensively, but I have read pieces of what he's written in other places, and one of the sort of sort of uh, cornerstones of the argument there, on some level, is an attempt to appeal to pragmatism, the claim being basically, now again, I'm not quoting Professor Liebens directly, but the idea in a nutshell assumes that, you know, you have to sort of use like a, you know, William James uh, sort of model for thinking about faith, you think about sort of like, what are your live options, right, in terms of your faith commitments, and then sort of make decisions within those live options. I mean, I guess it's theoretically possible in the world of abstract epistemology that, like, you know, Wahhabi Islam is right, but that's not really, you know, a live option for me right now. So 
I think you know, I wonder sometimes, you know, that argument actually speaks to me a lot. And I, I get the sense from what you're describing that it speaks to you on some level. I wonder sometimes if that's just a function of age. I think when I was 18, if you would have sort of appealed to pragmatism, I would, have thought, I would have thought that you're just sort of selling out. Right? In other words, when I was 18, I was looking for cosmological proofs, teleological proofs. And the feeling was, was that, you know, those weren't going to suffice. Well, somehow, you know, there was, it was an attempt by Judaism to sort of, you know, uh, punt the big questions in service of sort of focus on uh, the standard sort of codes of Jewish law. But I wonder sometimes if sometimes when we get older, uh, not that we're, either of us are that old, but I do think that there is a trend that when you get older, you start to realize that pragmatism is a strong feature of life, and it actually may have some epistemological value in terms of making decisions about how we sort of navigate. Uh, once again, I uh, hope we're not looking for a debate because I cannot agree more. Uh, I definitely, I, I like to say, like when I was younger, I was like a pure truth seeker. Like the only question that matters is what is the truth? And I can't say I've given up on truth, for sure not. I still care. But the idea that pragmatic considerations are part of the evaluation has definitely become more pronounced for me as I get older. If I could just pick up on your James example, here's one thing I could definitely point to. Uh, I'm not going to do the whole James essay in the interest of time, but James says we have a right to make a choice when the choice is what he calls forced, momentous, and live. And for years, I agreed with forced and momentous and didn't agree with live. And now that I'm older, I agree with live also. And let's explain extremely briefly. James says, I could be an agnostic in intellectual thought, but I have to choose. Either I'm going to lead a religious lifestyle or I'm not. There's no middle ground. That's a forced choice. Right? I don't have to choose which flavor ice cream I want for dessert, but I have to choose. I'm going to leave a religious lifestyle or not. Momentous means the choice really matters. Right? It's a significant choice. So I always thought that was important, a forced choice and a mentor's choice. But a live choice, he would say what Rav David said, those of us who grew up perhaps in the Western world, maybe, maybe Christianity is a live option for us. Maybe, I don't know, Reformed Judaism is a live option for us. But being a, you know, a Hindu is probably not such a live option for us, or being Zoroastrian, right? So I thought, what does that matter? That's just an accident of birth. But I realized that, you know, it's not a reasonable proposition that I have to try out every single religion out there for half a year before I decide what life I should lead. That's just not reasonable. It doesn't lead to a good life. And I think at that point, I have to restrict myself to what's in my mirror, as it were, what's in my, on my horizon. And as I'm older, I even appreciate James' third point, right? One has to choose among the live options one has. You know, uh, and add sort of uh, another point which sort of mirrors uh, what I was describing before is that I think that there is obviously an element of getting older and appreciating the complexity that unfortunately youth t tends to sort of uh, blind you to. But actually, I was listening to a podcast not that long ago between uh, two very interesting thinkers. One, her name is Oria Mivorach, who is a very interesting scholar of postmodernism and a student of Rav Shagar, at least an indirect student. And then she was having a debate with somebody. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he wrote a book called Platina Viplastalina, if you want to Google that, you can find his name. But he was making an interesting observation about Rev Shagar. Now, Rev Shagar, uh, you can do a whole podcast just on Rev Shagar and his relationship to doubt. But Rev Shagar was one of the most important contemporary Jewish theologians for a lot of reasons, not the least of which was, was the idea that he was willing to contend with postmodernism as a philosophical construct. And this, this professor on the, on, the, uh, on the podcast was making an interesting argument. He claimed that there are four times in Rav Shagar's writings where Rav Shagar uh, says almost directly that ideally at a young age, 
the education or educational paradigms should be rooted in what is described in the contemporary parlance as sort of like the Haredi model. That somehow, if we anchor our identity in a Torah-only approach from a very young age, well, that'll sort of generate a real sense that sort of Torah is fundamentally intertwined with who we are. And therefore, if later on someone comes along and says, ah, your Torah identity is only a social construct, well, his argument would be is, well, even if it is sort of a social construct, let's not minimize the power of social constructs here. And sort of Torah is by definition who I am because it was such a strong part of our kitschkas. And if you think about it, what I'm sort of describing here are sort of two different stages of life, which in a certain sense, in the middle area of our lives, we're not that open to. Like when we're 18 and someone says to you, yeah, but you developed all this intensity from your youth. So you'd say, ah, well, that was just a function of chance. And then you would say, ah, well, about pragmatism? And you would say, ah, that's not you know, serious in terms of its philosophical rigor. But I think oftentimes with Shagar's onto something is that when you get older, you start to realize, hey, pragmatism has a role. And you start to realize, wait a second, where does my intense commitment to Torah come from? Like, neither of us may have the same um, theological confidence that Rav Shagar, that Rav Cook had. But I think both of us, albeit very different upbringings, probably did feel in some way that we were raised in a space where sort of Judaism in its broadest sense was sort of part and parcel to who we are. I don't think it's coincidental that both of our fathers are rabbis, meaning this is very much sort of part of the identity we were growing up with. So if you have an anchor identity from your childhood and then you get older, you start to ask questions, you can default back into that. And you get a little more sophisticated and you get older, you start to appreciate pragmatism, you come to a point in your life where you say to yourself, you know, what the combination of the firm grasp I have from my youth, combined with the awareness that you know there's more to life than simply uh, algorithms, actually can create a more holistic faith and actually leave room for um, doubt in a more healthy way. I'm curious if you yourself can resonate with the idea that obviously you know I, I went to. Salman Shechter, which is very different from the Long Beach Yeshiva, which you went to. But I do think, I'm curious, you know, given your background in that world, like how much do you think that just early childhood education and fortifying a sense of this is who you are plays a role in your ability to actually tackle doubt head on? Okay, this is, now things are getting fascinating because I, having just justified pragmatism, I'm now going to make a move against it. Uh, Rav David's right. I basically was in Haredi schools my whole life till I was 19. And in some ways, what he's describing maybe did pay off for me, that I was in this intense Torah-only Gemara word. I, again, American Haredim do have secular studies, but they're hardly like prized or valued in that world. So, and to some degree, he might, Rav Shagar might even be pragmatically correct. I'll just say, look, in this issue, it's impossible for me to be pragmatic. Meaning when I raised my children, even if I'd be convinced that I'd cut down on, you know, religious risks, if I gave them a Haredi upbringing until 19, I just couldn't do it. Like, it, it's just foreign to me. I'd have to, you know, teach things I don't really believe. Uh, even like a little thing, I know you might not think it's a big deal, but like, let's say to pretend that all the wisdom's in the Torah, and uh, till they're 19, I can't talk to them about, you know, George Eliot's novels, or Yeats's poetry, or C.S. Lewis's defense of religion because he's Christian. Like, to me, it's just inconceivable I could have done that, that I could have uh, lived uh, that discourse for 19 years and then say, oh, so, kids, at 19, I have some news for you. Actually, you know, the secular world has some interesting ideas, and they could be really helpful and insightful. So even, I guess, all of us are balancing our pragmatism and our commitment to ideals, and uh, I guess on this particular issue, it, it's hard for me to take the pragmatic approach, even though you might justify it pragmatically. Yeah, I'm not, I guess, my, just to clarify, I'm not, I'm not arguing the per se that we should sort of all have our kids be in Shiva Katanas until they're uh, 18. My point is just the idea that I don't think it's coincidental 
that oftentimes people who are sort of okay with navigating questions of faith, right, come with a very firm sense of commitment from something external to them. And yeah, there are cases that are exceptions. So you can have somebody, for example, who's a Balchuva and he's somebody who found religion, right? But even there, you know, it's hard to imagine somebody sort of, you know, just looking at cases of doubt and having no emotional attachment to sort of the outcome and then sort of looking at every doubt question and being like, well, you know what, I'm confident we can overcome this. I think the confidence has to come from somewhere. It may not come from career education, right? But it may come from the house, may come from the community, it may come from some place that sort of anchors you in a space that, let's be honest, that, you know, if you were to sort of abandon, you know, what you're raised with, there's a lot at stake there. So I'm not saying that I think that, you know, doubt is something which we have to sort of protect ourselves from by sort of closing ourselves off from humanity forever. But I think it's a more honest assessment of our lives to recognize maybe part of the reason why me, David Silverstein, and you, Yitzhak Blau, can be sitting here and both be two individuals who are very open to the broader Western intellectual canon and still feel confident in our faith right, is probably or at least possibly because of things that happened to us that may have partially been out of our control. And that anchor allows us to open up books and not feel like, oh, my God, you know, instantaneously I'm going to sort of not be from. I remember just parenthetically when I was in uh, Yeshiva when I was 19. So since I grew up um, in the non-Orthodox world, so I was exposed to Bible criticism at a very young age. So I remember when I was packing up my books to go to Yeshiva, and I did this Mesiach Lefit Tumo. Like, I didn't even think this was a big deal. I brought a mission Brewer, and I also brought Richard Elliott Friedman's Who Wrote the Bible. So it wasn't even, to me, like a strange thing. I thought to myself, wait a second, I'm going to Yeshiva. Like, I want to tackle the biggest questions that, you know, we have to deal with. Like, why wouldn't I bring Who Wrote the Bible? And, and I even remember to this day that uh, one of the rabbis was davening at my makom, at Mincha, and I had at my makom, um, this is actually, looking back on it, it was just hilarious, that I had at my makom three svarim. I had a full set of the Mishnah Brewer, four svarim. I had my Gemara. I had Richard Elliott Friedman, we have, um, who wrote the Bible. And then I had right next to it, Louis Jacobs, we have reason to believe. And to me, this like made perfect sense. And I remember the rabbi during Chazar Sashat, I have this vivid memory of the rabbi during Chazar Sashat looking at my Sfarim and like, like didn't know what to make of it. I wasn't in any way rebelling. I was like one of the frumest guys in the yeshiva. This is just like who I was. And I remember that some of my friends in yeshiva who didn't have the exposure to these types of things at a young age, they didn't hear about it from me, but they did hear about it later on in life in universities, and they actually had a really hard time with that. I'm certainly not advocating that we should be teaching our kids, you know, uh, biblical criticism in third grade, but I do think that's an example where, like, I didn't choose to go to Salman Shechter. I didn't choose to be exposed. I didn't choose to be, you know, raised in a very committed Jewish family. So there were just sort of features of my life that allowed me to anchor myself in commitment that didn't make me think that reading Richard Elliott Friedman would in any way compromise my mincha, whereas I would be willing to bet that for half the guys in the yeshiva, that book could have shattered their faith almost instantaneously. And that's sort of like a pragmatic element, which I think is real, something to think about when we're thinking about sort of how we navigate questions of doubt. Oh, ab- absolutely. But I think it's fascinating that we're having this conversation where one of us went from Salman Shechter to Yeshiva in Israel and one went from the Masifta of Long Beach to Yeshiva in Israel. But uh, let me say two things. I think Rev. David's heading in a certain direction, which is the fact that we're starting from a certain point, from being situated somewhere, should not be viewed as a drawback. I think he's, he's pushing in that direction, which I totally agree with. Uh, I think for two reasons. First of all, there's, as someone, I think Thomas Nagel once said, there is no such thing as a view from nowhere. 
I mean, we, no, everyone starts somewhere. Like, what would it mean for parents to say, we're not going to teach our kid anything, right? We're not going to bias our kid. No values, no direction. Just go out and find the world, right? That's also a choice. That's also picking a route, right? You're not exposing your kid to what it means to be committed to something. So there's no such thing as a view from nowhere. So A, it's just not a reasonable goal to have a zero starting point. B, maybe sometimes it's helpful to have a starting point, right? That What if I'm beneficial with what starting point I got? Uh, this is a point Alvin Plantinga makes. Plantinga is a Christian philosopher who's often very good about clearing away bad objections. So let's say someone says, I know you only believe in Judaism because you grew up that way. So what if you said, I only believe in the theory of relativity because I was born in the 20th century. But maybe that's an advantage, like since Einstein figured it out. So now I have an advantage over people who lived 300 years ago who never heard of the idea. So it could be that sometimes growing up in a world with a religious code, an ethical code, is advantageous towards finding the truth. It doesn't mean I can't ever peer over the fence and see what other people think. But I think, again, we should live in a world now where the fact that you start out in a certain context is not just a problem. It doesn't only mean you're biased and you can't think straight. That in many ways, it's quite helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, unfortunately, that uh, much of contemporary discourse around questions of identity, right, assumes that somehow if you, you have to apologize for sort of the identity that you're born into, right? But I think that one of the ways to sort of flip that argument on its head is to sort of embrace the fact that, you know, the identity that you're born into is sort of the starting point for how you navigate your life. Now, obviously, you have to use reason. So, for example, if you're raised in an environment which is morally problematic, the assumption is that there are certain moral truisms that we should all agree are sort of, you know, uh, beyond the pale, and you should over time be able to sort of uh, overcome those things. But but the fact that you're born into a certain situation shouldn't be a limitation in any way. It should just be a fact of your life, and you start to navigate uh, those conversations from that place. I like to use a metaphor of sort of like the right of first refusal here. In other words, like you're born into an identity, and you have that identity is sort of given you, given to you, and it has the right of first refusal that before you can explore something else, well, you should start by exploring the identity that you're born into. Right? To use an analogy, it's like you're born into a certain family. You don't apologize for being born into a certain family and start to spend uh, your entire life you know, experiencing different families. You assume that if your family is a healthy family, so you're going to assume that that's the place that's best for you. Obviously, if you live in an environment which is corrosive or uh, there's other types of very complicated things going on in your family, well, then you leave. But all things being equal, nobody thinks that it's somehow you know, a challenge to your free will in a meaningful way that you've never seen what it's like, at least for me, to grow up in the Blau family. I'm pretty confident about about, uh, my life in the Silverstein family, even though I don't know anything else. Right? So I think that's an example where like, once we have that attitude from the beginning, we don't constantly sort of live on the defensive that we have to apologize for all of our sort of uh, assumed identities that are simply a function of life. I'll just sort of like transition for one second. Um, you know, when thinking about these questions, obviously, um, there are a lot of texts that we could turn to. Uh, the Jewish tradition is extraordinarily vast. And um, there are a lot of contemporary thinkers. Um, Rabbi Lamb, for example, has a very important essay about, uh, about faith and doubt. But beyond Rabbi Lamb's essay, unless you want to address that one specifically, are there specific texts, either medieval, Talmudic, or contemporary, that help sort of guide uh, your perspective on the question of doubt? Okay, I think that's a very important question, because it could be there's a listener right now who says, it's very nice, this is what David Silverstein thinks, this is what Yitzchak Blau thinks, but it flies in the face of our tradition, right? Our tradition is very negative to kfira, and uh, maybe even negative to doubting, you could quote sources, and therefore, uh, this is divorced from Jewish tradition. So I would say, I think there's a real sense among many achronim that modernity is really different, and even before post-modernity. 
And maybe I'll just mention two sources. I think there are many. Uh, there's a famous Chazon Ish that says that uh, the harsh treatment of heretics doesn't really apply today. And the Chazon Ish says a couple of things. One thing he says is that once there was a world where it was more clear that there's a God, and we don't live in that world. We don't experience divine providence in that acute way. And therefore, A, I think we'd be more understanding of people's doubts. B, I think the Chazon Ish says it wouldn't even be effective. Right, there's a world where being tough is effective and a world where it's not. And he, I think he used the phrase, the, avotot ava, if I recall correctly. We have to bring people with accords of love. So I don't think the Chasnish is, you know, suspect of being, you know, a liberal Orthodox Jew from, uh, you know, from America. Okay, uh, but he understood that, you know, the modern predicament is different and the attitude to the co-fair will shift. So I just want to throw in some Rav Cook also, because I think Rav Cook goes one step further. The Chazanis just gave us a reason, so to speak, not to be negative toward the Kofar, not to be you know, uh, dismissive of the Kofar. But Rav Cook would also talk about idealism that he finds outside of Orthodox Jewry, which, again, Rav Cook even writes explicitly, once we assumed if someone was a Kofar, they also didn't have an ethical code, right? Maybe in paganism it went together. And Rav Cook says it's just not what he sees. Rav Cook is very affected by the idealism of secular Zionists, many of whom like, really gave their whole lives to trying to better the situation of the Jewish people. So in my mind, that's a very important model also, that A, we realize that doubt should be dealt with differently. We don't have the same negativity as the Chazanish would say. And B, we could even find something positive in those that don't end up comfortable in Orthodox Judaism, that if they're still ethical people, if they're still idealistic people, Rav Cook would say that at the end of the day, that's something we value even from a religious perspective. Yeah, I would just add a few other sources that I think are also really important here. Uh, Rav Amital, um, who himself is a Holocaust survivor, and you can sort of imagine uh, what that means to be a Holocaust survivor and still believe. And I was somebody who was raised, uh, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, and my grandmother and my grandfather were by no means scholars or profound theologians. But I do remember one time I was walking to shul with my grandmother, and I, I vividly remember it, that it was freezing outside, and she just sort of turned to me and asked me in uh, her very thick uh, European accent something to the effect of, do you actually believe that God exists? And it wasn't as if my grandmother was had read you know, a book that sort of challenged her faith. It's just that having witnessed and having experienced you know, the horrors of the Holocaust, it was hard for her not to have doubts just by virtue of what she had seen. And I think of Amital himself being a Holocaust survivor and somebody who's, I think, very authentic. When you read uh, his writings, he's sort of very authentic about what he's experiencing. And he has essays where he talks about sort of the nature of faith in the 21st century, in the 20th century, especially in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And I think that, um, you know, I don't remember exactly the citation, but I think uh, one of the themes that sort of emerges uh, from his writing is that it's sort of hard to, you know, encounter that kind of tragedy that the Jewish people experienced in the 30s and 40s and sort of come out of that, right, and not at least be sensitive to the world of doubt. Right. In other words, it just could you really blame somebody? Could you blame my grandmother, even though she herself was a committed Jew? Could you really blame her, right, for having questions about divine justice after losing uh, her mother and her siblings in the Holocaust? Like I think just our connection to that reality now, that may change over time because people get moved more far and further away from the Holocaust. But at least for us, having that connection, I think, sort of anchors our own contemporary experience with an awareness that we have to be a little bit uh, humble in our approach to faith, recognizing that like life is complicated and sort of there are many people who are going to have uh, doubt models that are sort of just a function of things they've experienced. I'll just sort of show, throw, throw in one more source. 
which is that there's a provocative piece by Rav Nachum Rabinovich where he, he argues based on um, a passage in um, the Meshachachma where he says that the Meshachachma thinks that really what Selma Elohim means is our capacity to make uh, free choices, right? Free will is the definitional feature of what it means to Selma Elohim. And therefore he thinks that, you know, anytime there's sort of external pressure, right, anchoring our faith, well, it's sort of a pagam, it sort of compromises our Selma Elohim. And therefore, he doesn't say this explicitly, but he certainly implies that in the contemporary period where the philosophical trends of the world are moving away from faith, and certainly if you just you know, go on Twitter, not that everybody uh, is on Twitter, but if you just go on social media platforms or just read the news, certainly new atheism and the general language of the world, at least the Western world, is not a profoundly uh, devout language. And therefore, it, it's almost like not only do we not have our faith anchored in medieval proofs, but general context we navigate now is not one where faith is the assumed given. So the paradox, so to speak, of modernity is that it's probably a great risk, right? And it's not surprising that many, many, many Jews opt out of religion because they don't have the same sort of coercive intellectual arguments that they may have had in the Middle Ages. They don't have the same sort of anti-Semitism that's forcing them to stay Jewish that you had in the early modern period. But the paradox here is that because there is the room for doubt, right, because we are living in a space where intellectual freedom reigns supreme, for those of us who are able to overcome that anxiety and choose a life of faith, it really may be the ultimate cue of our cell Elohim because we're actually making a choice divorced of any sort of uh, coercive external threats. And I think, you know, if you put those two sources combined with the sources that Rablau referenced, obviously there's a lot more, it does paint to an awareness of many uh, contemporary thinkers ranging from the Chazonish, I don't know, to, uh, to Rav Amital and Rav Nachum Rabinovich and Rav Cook and other thinkers as well, with an awareness that there's something about the modern experience which has changed. And therefore, even if we want to claim that, you know, animamin be'emunah shlema is the ideal, it simply does not reflect the reality of our times. And that's why we want to strive and aspire for, you know, firm belief, but it's sort of almost inescapable to sort of have those nagging doubts periodically. Yeah, I agree with Rav David. I'll just pick up on his first point, because I think he did something interesting with Rav Amital. Uh, I think a lot of people would agree with Rav Amital in a much more limited way. Like Rav Amital talks about how the Holocaust might affect a person's thinking. And then he referenced his grandparent, a survivor. I think for a lot of people will say, of course, I wouldn't fault a survivor for having doubts. Like someone who experienced the ultimate evil of Auschwitz and Madonic would have doubts about God. But I, I think it's true even for someone who wasn't a survivor, but who read about the Holocaust, right, or goes to visit, right? You find out the tremendous suffering people went through and see that kind of evil in the world. I, that could make you lose, that you're, you struggle with faith. So I think the problem of modernity, as he's saying, uh, becomes more profound for everybody. And again, thank God it is still possible to uh, feel good about one's, you know, Orthodox Judaism or other religious beliefs. But at the same time, I think having gone through such events is not just for the survivors. I think everybody now will, on some level, struggle more with belief. Maybe we could just sort of end by sort of doing a thought experiment. Um, one of the things I'm particularly interested in, uh, in terms of uh, my own contemporary, my own intellectual journey, is the question of neuroscience and sort of the way in which neuroscience, uh, what it does in terms of understanding um, the role of religion in our lives. So let's just think for a second about the following scenario. Like, let's say, for example, you had a student, and I'm sure we both have students like this, who go to college or read books or listen to podcasts about neuroscience. 
And they started to question the value of religious experience. Like, let's say, for example, they say, you know, I really love the davening on a right uh, on Friday night, and I really feel connected to the davening or the Havdalah service at my local Hillel, and you know, I really feel inspired in that moment. But the more I study about the brain, the more I understand um, neuroscience, the more I realize that there's just sort of neurons being fired all the time, and it's tough to tell whether or not I'm actually having a religious experience or something which is simply uh, a reflection of like the physical nature of my brain. So neither of us are neuroscientists. Obviously, we're not going to solve this problem in the next three minutes. Just as a matter of policy, like what do you think is a good strategy for somebody, irrespective of the specific neuroscientific question, what do you think is a good question for somebody who themselves is anchored in faith but encounters a struggle? Like what do you think is the best strategy to sort of moving forward? Okay, so maybe I'll focus on that specific example and then try to broaden it a little bit. Uh, one of the things I want to write about one day is how science has made tremendous progress in helping humanity in modernity, and yet there's a narrow scientific perspective that closes off almost all of what we value, which we have to avoid. And in Rav David's example, that is not, I think, maybe I'll phrase it, here's the broader point. Sometimes critiques of religion are not critiques of religion, they're critiques of everything. And I think that's an example of that, meaning I could undermine my robust with that kind of thinking, but I could undermine everything with that kind of thinking. Let's say I love hugging my son, right? Couldn't I also, I could give some evolutionary, biological, chemical explanation for why I like hugging my son and decide it's nothing more than, uh, you know, a survival tactic for an evolutionary perspective. It's nothing more than certain chemicals, you know, uh, reactions happening in my brain. Uh, I could undermine a basketball game that way. I could think, oh, I think I'm really enjoying the jump shot, but let's think about what's going on inside. I could, uh, you know, giving up uh, something for a friend, right? So when, I would say as a good rule, when there's something that undermines everything, it's probably problematic. We probably should not walk down that way. So I would ask often, I'm not saying it's true about everything, there are some objections that are specific to religion, but really that's a good first question. Is this really an objection to religion or it's an objection to everything? And if it's an objection to everything, I think we have good reason to reject it. Yeah, I would just sort of uh, maybe broaden that slightly. I think that uh, it's an excellent sort of reply. I would say that when a person encounters this question, right, the first thing he should ask himself is, are there other angles to the question that aren't being addressed specifically by the presentation? So, for example, you know, if you only see the world in neuroscientific terms, well, you get the impression that there's nothing else out there in terms of determining what is true. But I think a broader way for thinking about knowledge is that, like, every question, is multi sort of is, is has different angles. There are philosophical elements to that question, there's theological elements to that question, there's psychological elements to that question. And I think that like instinctively people get defensive, but the first thing they should do is sort of broaden the question. Like even if you have a specific problem within this one very sort of limited angle of neuroscience, okay, but maybe neuroscience is only focusing on one element of the conversation. And actually before we start, you know, having a panic attack, we should ask ourselves, are there other ways to answer this question without just thinking neuroscientifically. I'll just sort of end maybe with one last question, which obviously is a broad topic, but we only have uh, two minutes or so, is, you know, I think one of the challenges people have is, let's say, for example, you start to have doubts or you start to read books. So even if you feel confident in your faith, right, is there ever a moment where you think that a doubt should actually impact a religious person's halachic observance? Now, obviously, I'm not talking about the quality of the observance, right? Obviously, if somebody really believes, so his prayer will probably be a different type of encounter than if a person struggles. But I'm talking about more the mechanics. Like, can you imagine someone saying, you know, I'm going to hold off on davening mincha right now because I don't really feel so confident in my belief system? Or would you say that, no, you know, 
part of the experience of religion is sort of, you know, working through these problems while simultaneously maintaining commitment. Wow. Not sure you should ask me such a complex question with two minutes to go, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, it's a little tricky for me because some of the issue might be are the doubts about ethical issues, and in particular because I do believe that our ethical intuitions can influence PSAC. Now, I don't mean ethical intuitions are a bulldozer and we could just change every ISR we want. But I think there is a certain amount of flexibility in the tradition where if you have strong ethical reasons, you'll rely on a shita that's a minority position, you rely on a sfari you might have relied on otherwise. So there I think it's hard for me to differentiate like the doubts and the ethical pull. Uh, the other thing I'll say is I would say sometimes it could impact. I realize this might not be a, um, a major leniency, but I might say to someone who's struggling to dav with davening, you know, daven a shorter davening, or even given where you are right now, maybe skip Mar for a week, right? Sometimes that's better for a person's longtime religious goal. I realize that maybe it's not a very rabbinic thing to say, but someone who really is really struggling with davening, maybe they should do a shorter psukkotizimra for a certain period, right? If, if I would say if it's mutter for someone who's coming late, I don't see why it shouldn't be mutter for someone who's profoundly struggling with their connecting to God. So uh, I don't know if that's a good enough example, but that would be an example in my mind where it could have an impact. Yeah, I, I would just say that that answer um, is very much sort of, I think, pastorally uh, powerful in the sense that you're sort of recognizing where the, the person is and acknowledging that, you know, there may be sort of long-term consequences to not being in any way willing to sort of bend uh, even slightly. But I don't think it necessarily deals with the question philosophically, meaning I think that there are two issues going on whenever you have these types of dialogues, right? There's the sort of personal pastoral, and you want to sort of anchor the person's faith in a reality of where that person is. But there's a more meta question, which is, wait a second, like, you know, does faith, uh, does practice require perpetual certainty? I'll sort of uh, just reference, maybe we'll end with this, that Rabbi Lamb, uh, he has, in part of his essay, he talks about uh, doubt versus denial. And at least for me, I know the guys in my shir have heard me talk about this before. For me, that was a very powerful moment in thinking about uh, the dissonance between doubt as uh, sort of reality in the abstract versus doubt actually having real concrete, concrete manifestation in the world. So, for example, think about it this way. In other words, people think about it like, well, you know, if I'm having doubts, maybe I shouldn't daven mincha. But one of the things he points out is that doubt exists in the abstract, right? Doubt exists in the intellectual petri dish that is our minds. But once we actually have to do something, at that point, not davening is not a function of the doubt. It's actually a denial of that which you were doubting. So if you, again, getting back to what we talked about earlier, if you have an anchored identity, and this is sort of who you are, unless you're at the point where you think that the belief is totally irrational, totally unreasonable, so you're sort of, it's better off, I would argue, sticking with the status quo and anchoring your faith or anchoring your practice where it is right now with an awareness that if you stop doing that, that's also a statement. So if you deny something categorically, well, then it would make sense to sort of give up. But assume for, assuming, for example, that right now you're only doubting, right? So in that case, I would say you're probably better off, even from a philosophical perspective, maintaining the status quo, albeit with the caveats you mentioned earlier that you may want to sort of, you know— um, tweak it a little bit to account more pastorally for sort of where you are emotionally. Okay, so um, I want to, this is obviously a conversation that can go on for many, many hours, and hopefully we'll be able to have another podcast, either a follow-up or a topic that relates to these types of questions. I want to uh, thank Rablau for uh, joining us on the Talking and Learning podcast, and uh, I want to encourage anybody uh, who's listening to the podcast who has any questions 
for either me, Reblau, or really anybody else, and just wants to use uh, our email address as a springboard for talking about ideas, our email address is to write to podcast at gmail.com. And uh, always feel free to be in touch. And uh, if you have any comments, observations, we're always happy to hear. Wishing everybody a Chag Chanukah Sameach. Yeah, everybody should have a great Hanukkah, and thank you to Rev David. <laughs>